The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. The Revenge of the Suburbs. Welcome to my weekly report for Thursday, November 7th, 2019. Thank you for listening to this independent news, which appreciates your support through the donate button at buzzburbank.com. They won't be coming on foot with pitchforks and torches. Instead, they will come in their SUVs and carry voter IDs and registration cards that will feel like torches and pitchforks on Election Day 2020. They are the suburbanites who swung from voting for Obama in 2008 to voting for Trump in 2016. On Tuesday of this week, they swung back. Suburban voters in Kentucky fired a Republican incumbent governor in favor of a Democrat. Kentucky's estate Trump won by 30 points in 2016. Although the incumbent was extremely unpopular, a solidly red state elected a moderate Democrat. Virginia voters gave Democrats total control of their state's government for the first time in 23 years. Voters in the suburbs of Ohio cities flipped state and local offices from red back to blue. The 2020 election is now less than a year away, so that's how long Republicans have to try to win back the burbs, and both their methods failed in this week's Kentucky and Virginia races. As the AP's Steve Peoples points out, Kentucky's incumbent Republican Governor Matt Bevan made himself in Trump's image, got Trump to make a campaign appearance, and focused his campaign on Trump and impeachment. Moderate Democrat Andy Bashir ran on kitchen table issues and won in a state that's solidly red. In Virginia, conversely, Republican candidates distanced themselves from Trump and asked him not to make campaign appearances on their behalf. They were also defeated. That didn't work either. Neither method worked. Republicans are flummoxed about their next moves. As districts flipped from red to blue in the suburbs of Philadelphia, Detroit, and Charlotte, North Carolina. Republicans lost to Democrats in a city council race in Tucson, Arizona. A Republican lost to a Democrat in the mayor's race in Wichita, Kansas. Columbus, Indiana elected a Democratic mayor. The list goes on. Quoting Kentucky's new Democratic governor, Our elections don't have to be about right versus left. They are still about right versus wrong. Suburban voters, measured by their votes, have a lot in common with independent voters who are measured in public opinion polls. This is all crucially important information heading into 2020. With Democrats and Republicans in this country deeply entrenched in nearly equal numbers, it was the independent vote of the suburbs that took the nation from Obama to Trump. Nationally, independents gave Trump a four-point lead over Clinton. In Michigan, they gave Trump a 16-point margin. Live by the burbs, die by the burbs. Based on the blue wave of last November and the blue wave of this November, the wave of independent suburbanites in November is looking increasingly blue, and Republicans appear to have no idea how to stop it. The Virginia sweep is hugely important nationally for other reasons. It means raising the minimum wage in that state, new gun control measures, and the more likely ratification of a national equal rights amendment. Among their first orders of business, the new Virginia legislature is expected to vote in January to ratify that constitutional amendment guaranteeing equal pay and equal rights across the board for women and girls. In January, Virginia will become the 38th state to ratify this constitutional amendment, making it the law of the land. 
after a decades-long fight to make it so. It wasn't until we got to the televised portion of the Nixon impeachment hearings that public opinion began to change. Congressional Democrats are now feeling very certain the same will occur in the Trump impeachment. And they're hoping they're right because multiple polls are showing nearly identical results that the American people are at the moment sharply divided over whether to impeach and remove this president. 49% say yes, while an undeniable 47% say no. Democrats support impeachment as much as Republicans don't. The news comes from independent voters who now favor impeachment with a 58% majority. While the right and left are locked into their positions, independents are shifting quickly against Trump. But the number of Americans favoring impeachment is up, and Trump got no bump in the polls from the killing of ISIS founder al-Baghdadi. Even a Fox News poll put those favoring impeachment and removal at 49%, up 2% from a month ago, and 8 points above the number opposed to impeachment. The number favoring impeachment is not a majority yet. But when the public hearings began and the clips start showing up on social media and the nightly news, those numbers could change even if only by a little. If that 2% gap grows to around 10%, there will also be a change in the wind. The televised impeachment hearings begin Wednesday with three witnesses in the lineup so far, including Ambassadors Bill Taylor, who took such copious notes about what he saw and heard, Marie Yovanovitch, the career professional who was threatened and driven from her job, and other key players in Trump's Ukraine scandal. In May of last year, we learned something, the importance of which took nearly a year and a half to soak in. At the start of May 2018, we were focused on the Mueller investigation and the likelihood the president's campaign manager, Paul Manafort, would go to prison for money laundering and financial fraud, and that is what ultimately happened. Although I and others did report on it at the time, we had no way of knowing this thing we learned a year and a half ago about Trump and Ukraine might be key to his impeachment. What we learned back then, back in May of 2018, is that the Trump administration okayed the sale of Javelin anti-tank missiles to Ukraine for fending off Russian aggression. But those missiles were only made available to Ukraine two days after it killed its own multiple investigations of Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort and ended its cooperation with U.S. Special Counsel Robert Mueller. But it was two years ago that Ukraine's then-President Petro Poroshenko got a politically important invitation to the Trump White House less than two weeks after meeting with lawyer Rudy Giuliani. That was in June of 2017. From the earliest days of his presidency, Trump realized he could use White House meetings and military aid to make an ally do what he wanted, which, in the case of the missiles, was to interfere not only with a foreign investigation, but to also interfere in a crucial investigation by a special counsel here in the United States. Simultaneously to that, and conveniently for Manafort and Trump, Ukraine allowed a key witness in the Mueller probe to get away. That potential witness is Konstantin Kalimnik, who was Manafort's office manager when Manafort was a lobbyist for a pro-Russian political party in Ukraine. Kalimnik is also a Russian intelligence operative who was a potential witness to collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. And Ukrainian officials allowed Kalimnik to flee to Russia in the midst of the Mueller probe because Ukraine needed those missiles to fend off Russia. Quoting a Ukrainian lawmaker who supported Poroshenko, in every possible way we will avoid irritating the top American officials. 
like the current scandal for which Trump faces impeachment, what happened 17 months ago involved military aid to a vulnerable Ukraine and a couple of favors for Trump. Favors not for the U.S., for Trump. Most importantly, Trump learned he could leverage foreign governments to help him and get away with it. Ultimately, he believed he'd gotten away with getting election help from Russia after the Mueller investigation ended just vaguely enough to be misinterpreted. He believed he'd gotten away with using the power of his office to get protection from prosecution for Paul Manafort and perhaps himself. And this year, Trump believed he could withhold military aid in exchange for dirt on a domestic political rival and get away with it. But this time he got caught in his own transcripts, and that abuse of power is the main subject of his impeachment. Trump's lawyers would be allowed to defend him in the final stages of impeachment, but only if he stops blocking witnesses from testifying. That hasn't happened, and it isn't likely to. But that is one of the rules adopted a week ago today for this phase of the impeachment, the part with televised public hearings that are now just days away. In the meantime, this week, House lawmakers have been releasing transcripts from five weeks of closed-door testimony that have provided more than enough evidence for impeachment. Quoting a member of the House Rules Committee, we don't know whether President Trump is going to be impeached, but the allegations are as serious as it gets, endangering national security for political gain. Democrats also this week have continued their quest for witnesses with both requests and subpoenas, and they say they'll consider fines and or jail time for those who have ignored those subpoenas. And since Trump continues to block even past employees from testifying, even after a legal subpoena, impeachment leader Adam Schiff says each of those defied subpoenas will be listed in the Obstruction of Congress article of impeachment. And he hasn't just blocked testimony, Trump. He's mocked those who have testified against him, calling a Purple Heart veteran a never-Trumper and intimidating the anonymous whistleblower. He's ordered the entire executive branch not to cooperate with impeachment investigators. The heart of Trump's impeachment is his abuse of power, specifically with Ukraine. But obstruction of Congress will be a close second. It was that obstruction that forced President Nixon to resign. The Democrats who control the House hope to be able to vote on impeachment and send it to the Senate before the December holiday break. While Trump and his Republican allies in Congress scramble through various attempts at defending him, the president's favorite defense involves his former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, who is now behind bars, awaiting a presidential pardon if he can swing it. While in prison, Manafort has met with Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. And now we know why thanks to previously unrevealed documents from the Mueller investigation. The documents came Saturday because of a Freedom of Information lawsuit filed by CNN and BuzzFeed News, internal documents from the Mueller probe that bring Manafort's name into the current discussion of Ukraine. These documents are based on interviews with Manafort's deputy campaign chairman Rick Gates, the former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen, and former senior advisor Steve Bannon. The documents reveal what Manafort and Giuliani have in common with Donald Trump. Belief in a conspiracy theory from a conspiracy website that it was our ally Ukraine that messed with the 2016 election, not our dreaded enemy Russia, and that the interference was to help Hillary Clinton, not Trump. Their incredible theory insists that Ukraine framed Russia to make it appear it was Russia interfering with the U.S. election in 2016. Under this theory, Vladimir Putin was framed. 
Trump is, for whatever unproven reason, driven to prove Russia is innocent and that he got elected without Russia's help. And incredible as it is, this conspiracy theory provides an alternative suspect for whoever's willing to believe. These documents, just published this week, show that this bizarre theory was being pushed by none other than Paul Manafort since at least the summer of 2016. The documents show Manafort appears to have gotten his Ukraine conspiracy theory from his office manager, Russian intelligence operative Konstantin Kalimnik. But it is still the unanimous assessment of the entire U.S. intelligence community that it was Russia, not Ukraine, meddling with the 2016 election. And Robert Mueller later indicted a dozen Russians for their roles in the hacking of a Democratic email server. One of those indicted Russians is Manafort's pal, Konstantin Kalimnik, who's living well back in Moscow while Manafort waits in his cell. Get the emails, said Trump to his top aides. Rick Gates says he remembers the moment on Trump's campaign plane when Trump gave that order about the stolen Democratic emails that had landed at WikiLeaks. And then Deputy Campaign Manager Gates told the FBI he also remembers the response from soon-to-be National Security Advisor Mike Flynn. Gates says Flynn told Trump that he could use his intelligence sources to try to get copies of those stolen Democratic emails. Trump confidant Roger Stone, who went on trial this week, had posted privately and publicly about his prior knowledge of the WikiLeaks dump. We now know from the prosecutor's opening statement in Stone's trial that it's really about Trump, that trial, and about Trump's connection to the effort to get hold of those stolen emails. Phone records show that Trump and Stone spoke repeatedly during the time that Stone was talking to WikiLeaks about those emails and testimony against Stone by former Trump advisor Steve Bannon could be bombshell material. And thanks to these newly released documents from the Mueller probe, we now know that the Republican National Committee also had prior knowledge of the WikiLeaks dump. In writing, Trump later told Robert Mueller he had no advanced knowledge of the WikiLeaks email dump. Did the president commit perjury? But Gates says he remembers Trump taking a call about it and saying that more emails would be released just before ordering his staff to, quote, get the emails. The Mueller investigation and the current Ukraine scandal are connected. And it turns out they've been connected all along. Lately, Trump's Attorney General William Barr has been meeting with officials in some of our allied countries to see if they can help prove that the Mueller investigation was tainted from the start it's another effort to argue that Russia and the Trump campaign are innocent and that the guilty parties are Ukraine, the Democrats, the deep state, and the media, all based on that unconvincing conspiracy theory. It is Barr's assignment to investigate the CIA and the FBI and the Mueller team on the theory that all three were corrupt. Remember, it was Barr who told Congress he already believes the FBI spied on the Trump campaign in 2016. Barr's already met with officials in Australia, Italy, and England. The Brits were gobsmacked by what Barr was asking of them on behalf of Trump. It's like nothing we've come across before, said a British official with knowledge of that meeting. They are basically asking in quite robust terms for help in doing a hatchet job on their own intelligence services. That's a quote. And then on Monday evening, a bombshell from the Brits that just two days after Boris Johnson had become prime minister of the UK, Trump called him, Johnson, to help investigate his political opponents and to discredit the Mueller report.
Trump's call to Johnson came one day after Trump's call to Ukraine's new president, Volodymyr Zelensky. And just days after Trump's call to Boris Johnson, who should show up in London but Attorney General William Barr? Parliament is now investigating that call to Johnson and now very wary of its relationship with the U.S. despite our long and powerful alliances. Trump is especially keen to have William Barr look into the U.K.'s role in the Russia investigation, mostly because of a dossier outlining how Trump could be compromised by Russia, a dossier compiled by former British spy Christopher Steele. Chasing Trump's conspiracy theory, Attorney General Barr has been to Rome twice to talk with Italian officials about what they know about the start of what was then the FBI's Russia investigation. Italy says it has nothing to offer William Barr's investigation. Barr hopes to have his investigation wrapped up around Thanksgiving, perhaps just in time for an impeachment vote. Anything Barr finds or claims to find will be weaponry for Trump and the Republicans. It may be the final test of William Barr's independence from Trump and his credibility as a prosecutor. Barr may have already passed the first test. The Washington Post reports Trump urged Barr to hold a news conference to tell the world that the president had not broken the law with his Ukraine call. The Post reports that William Barr declined to do that. Quoting the Post article co-authored by Carol Lenig, from the moment the administration released the rough transcript, Barr made it clear that whatever the president was up to, he was not a party to it. Because Barr had served Trump well upon the release of the Mueller report, Trump is reportedly still on good terms with Bill Barr. Pointing to a fantastical alternate theory about the 2016 election interference is just one of the counteroffensive Trump and his supporters have launched against impeachment. Another is they still argue there was no quid pro quo, no this for that between Trump and Ukraine, even while they're also saying it wouldn't matter if there was. They complained about the traditional closed-door hearings that they themselves had conducted many times, and even though the transcripts released this week show that Republicans were given and took advantage of the equal time they were given to ask questions during the hearing they did actually attend. Another counter-offensive measure is Trump's attacks on those who testify against him in defiance of him. Yet another counter-offensive, awkwardly clumsy as it was, involved storming a closed-door hearing in a secured meeting room with cell phones recording and live streaming. But the biggest counter-offensive of them all is William Barr's investigation of the investigation into Russian interference. It is Barr's assignment to come back with evidence that it was Ukraine that framed Russia to make it appear Trump had won the election with Russia's help. Now all William Barr has to do is get it done before the case against the president goes to the Senate. Of the Republican senators who will act as jurors to find Trump innocent or guilty, some have already admitted there was a quid pro quo that Trump did use military aid to force Ukraine to investigate Joe Biden and his son. They argue the U.S. often puts conditions on aid to other countries. What they don't discuss is that the condition in this case was to help Trump, not the U.S., if they wanted that crucial military aid. Republicans argue there was no criminal intent by the president, therefore it can't be extortion. 
For now, they argue, putting conditions on U.S. aid isn't illegal and therefore doesn't qualify as an impeachable offense, even though Congress is constitutionally allowed to decide on a case-by-case basis what qualifies as a high crime or misdemeanor. Courts have ruled that a president does not have to break the law to commit a high crime or misdemeanor against the nation. Legal precedent says impeachment could be for almost anything, and here we have something. But Trump's voter base is more entrenched than ever. They're pumped to defend the president, and they've made it clear to their Republican representatives they either back Trump or pay the ultimate price on their next election day. Trump, meanwhile, frustrates Republicans because he seems to change his defense and his counteroffensive every day. Most days, he still argues there was no quid pro quo. Some days, he argues it would be okay if there was. Trump has said and done so many things over the past three years to outrage so many Americans, he's hoping this one won't stand out too much. Let's see how that plays out on TV. With the public impeachment hearings going on the air this coming Wednesday and with the target date for a full House vote to impeach before Thanksgiving, that means this will likely all be over in the House in a couple of weeks. Tick-tock. Trump and Republicans continued to bash and intimidate the anonymous whistleblower, who is no longer even needed as a witness for the impeachment because everything he or she said in their official through channels whistleblower complaint has been confirmed by a string of witnesses and a pile of documents. Through their attorney, the whistleblower tried to make it all stop on Sunday by offering to directly and under oath answer Republicans' written questions with written answers. No Democrats allowed, just Republicans, the whistleblower answering questions under oath. Congressional Republicans said it wouldn't be the same without a face-to-face grilling, which is what Democrats had said about Trump's refusal to answer Robert Mueller's questions face-to-face. Trump responded by again demanding to know the whistleblower's identity and accused that whistleblower of, quote, a lot of false information. False information that's been confirmed as true in multiple witness testimonies. The attorney for the whistleblower says there have been multiple threats on his client's life should that identity be revealed. The federal whistleblower law says any government employee who reports wrongdoing must be protected and has the right to remain anonymous. The Trump administration is also going after another anonymous, the one who authored the soon-to-be-released book, A Warning. The author is reportedly a senior official inside the Trump White House who wrote an essay for the New York Times last year in which they claimed there are those inside the White House dedicated to keeping this erratic president somewhat in check whenever they could. The essay expressed profound concern about the competence of the president of the United States. When it was published, Trump responded by ordering an intensive search for the leaker and accusing someone in his midst of treason. Now the Trump administration has a warning for the author of A Warning. His Justice Department under William Barr has warned the whistleblower that he or she may be violating, quote, one or more non-disclosure agreements. We can almost guess Barr's next move in the Edward Snowden case. His Justice Department is arguing the government should get royalties from the sale of Snowden's book, Permanent Record, That seems likely to happen with the book A Warning by Anonymous, which has already more than once topped the Amazon bestseller list, and it won't even be released until November 19th, just in time for the holidays.
The public phase of impeachment has already begun. It began Monday with the release of transcripts of the closed-door testimony that's been delivered over the past five weeks. We've learned much from these transcripts. We've learned that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo may have been lying when he said Senior Advisor Michael McKinley had never raised any concerns with him about the removal of Marie Ivanovich as ambassador to Ukraine. Testifying behind closed doors for Congress, we know from the transcript McKinley says he raised the issue at least three times, including during the call in which McKinley threatened to resign over Mike Pompeo's failure to back his own ambassadors at the State Department. We also learned that there's a shadow Secretary of State, one Trump considers more important and more faithful than Mike Pompeo. That's Sean Hannity of Fox News. The host of Trump's favorite TV show, had been stoking the president's anger toward Ukraine and pumping a conspiracy theory about Ambassador Yovanovitch. Quoting from the transcript of her closed-door testimony, I was told that the secretary, or perhaps someone around him, was going to place a call to Mr. Hannity on Fox News to say, you know, what's going on? Do you have proof of these allegations or not? And I understand that call was made, end quote. Hannity says he never had such a discussion with Pompeo, meaning it must have been, as Marie Ivanovich put it, somebody around him. CNN reports that morale at Mike Pompeo's State Department has never been lower and that our nation's ambassadors and their staff have lost confidence in their leader. We learned in the unsealed testimony of Purple Heart veteran Alex Vindman, the top Ukraine expert on the National Security Council, that he was told not to speak to anyone about that July 25th call between Trump and Ukraine's president. Active duty Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman was a first-hand eyewitness to that call. He testified that he, like others, was concerned about the political favor being leveraged in that call. He testified that he took his concerns to National Security Council lawyer John Eisenberg and that it was Eisenberg who told him to keep his mouth shut. It was Vindman who had testified that parts of that conversation on July 25th had been left out of the transcript of the call that first went into a super-secret computer meant for other purposes before it was confoundingly released to the public. The president's top Russia advisor, Tim Morrison, testified behind closed doors that he too was alarmed about the obvious quid pro quo. Morrison told lawmakers he tried to find out if Trump-appointed ambassador to Europe Gordon Sondland was part of the pressure campaign because he'd gone rogue or because he was acting at the direction of Trump and or Rudy Giuliani. Morrison says he stated his concern to Sondland. Sondland had told Congress he heard no complaints about pressing Ukraine to investigate the Bidens. Sondland was apparently lying. And on Tuesday, after realizing his own personal peril now in the Ukraine scandal, Gordon Sondland reversed his original answer to Congress, revising his testimony, now admitting that, why, yes, there was a this for that between Trump and Ukraine and that the president had withheld military aid and a White House meeting pending Ukraine's promise to investigate Joe Biden. Sondland's closed-door testimony was also released Tuesday, and it includes his revision, which begins, I now recall... Sondland testified he tried to make sure that the statement from Ukraine about its corruption investigation would please Rudy Giuliani and the president. Democrats are now calling on Sondland to return to Capitol Hill to clarify his original testimony, which is now highly contradicted by other witnesses and by his own revised testimony. Gordon Sondland, an Oregon businessman who always wanted to be a diplomat, donated a million bucks to the Trump campaign 
and got the gig. Now he's at the heart of the Ukraine scandal. House investigators now also want to sit down with acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney. They've sent him a formal request saying they'd like his deposition by the end of the week. Mulvaney won't show. That will be noted in the Obstruction of Congress article of impeachment. After five weeks of complaining about these closed-door hearings, the transcripts of those hearings show Republicans got and used their equal time to ask questions of the witnesses. The transcript shows Republicans were not shut out of the hearings, that the hearings were not rigged, and that there was no need for the frat boy stunt of storming a secured room to shout, let us in. The transcripts also show Republicans to be focused on sidetracking the investigation into Trump, trying to make it about the credibility of the witnesses, getting the identity of the now irrelevant whistleblower, and promoting the conspiracy theory it was Ukraine, not Russia, undermining the 2016 election. Republicans have used their time to talk about the Bidens and Hillary Clinton, the FBI, and of course the Steele dossier. In other words, the Republican defense for Trump is no defense at all, but a counter-initiative to muddy the water and to try to distract from the task at hand. Toward that end, Republicans are changing the lineup in their seats on the impeachment committees, adding fierce Trump defenders like Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows. We have also heard from Ambassador Kurt Volker through the transcripts of his closed-door testimony, Volker was one of the so-called Three Amigos, which also included Gordon Sondland and Energy Secretary Rick Perry. In his testimony, Volker also confirmed the quid pro quo, saying the investigation Trump wants from Ukraine is specifically about serving his personal political interests. Volker says he was troubled by that July 25th call and said there's no validity to Trump's claims about corruption among the Bidens. And despite being one of the three amigos assigned to pressure Ukraine for dirt on Biden, Volker says he was mostly out of the loop on Ukraine policy. And today, a surprise last-minute witness who can give us insights into the role that Vice President Mike Pence played in the Ukraine scandal. It was Pence who met with new President Volodymyr Zelensky in Ukraine on September 1st to personally deliver Trump's demands. Today's surprise witness is State Department veteran Jennifer Williams, assigned as an aide to the vice president, and she was in that meeting in which Pence told Ukraine's new president that his much-needed military aid was not coming until Ukraine investigated corruption in a way that would satisfy President Trump. And it was outside that same meeting that Ambassador Gordon Sondland would tell a close advisor to President Zelensky that the military aid and the White House visit were both completely contingent on getting an investigation that would lead to the Bidens. We also got some intriguing news this week about Rudy Giuliani's pals Lev and Igor. While Igor Fruman has hired Paul Manafort's lawyer to represent him, his cohort, Lev Parnas, has instead agreed to cooperate with the House impeachment investigation. Specifically, Lev says he'll provide lawmakers with both his documents and his testimony with the option of pleading the Fifth Amendment for certain questions. Lev Parnas played a big role in putting pressure on Ukraine on behalf of Trump's shadow State Department, the one headed by Rudy Giuliani. News footage from just two weeks ago shows Parnas standing right behind Trump at one of his venting rallies. Lev is flipping on Trump now, reportedly, because he's, quote, very angry about Trump's claim that he doesn't know Lev Parnas. 
Will Lev's partner, Igor Fruman, also flip? Or will he stay with the Paul Manafort lawyer? Is the duo of Lev and Igor over? Stay tuned. Now, a word about the judge who will preside over the Senate's impeachment trial. Our founding fathers gave that job to the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Currently, that's John Roberts. That's interesting, because Trump and Roberts have tangled before publicly. The 64-year-old Roberts is a fellow conservative, but sees his job as that of an impartial umpire, and that made him a shoe-in at his confirmation hearing 14 years ago. In his career, Chief Justice Roberts has never presided over a trial and has mostly stayed out of politics, but his days of a low profile are over. And he goes into the Senate impeachment hearing with a bit of history with Trump. Trump has called Roberts an absolute disaster and called Roberts' 2012 vote to uphold Obamacare, quote, bullshit. When Trump criticized a federal judge who'd ruled against him last year at this time, Trump called him an Obama judge. Roberts fired back with fury, quote, We do not have Obama judges or Trump judges, Bush judges or Clinton judges. What we have is an extraordinary group of dedicated judges doing their level best to do equal right to those appearing before them. As we've expected for years now, really, the battle over seeing Trump's tax returns will be decided by the United States Supreme Court, whose chief justice will now also provide over the Senate's impeachment trial. This week's avalanche of news began on Monday, and it began with a thunderous roar. Aside from the new Mueller stuff and the hearings testimony, there was also a ruling from a federal appeals court about Trump's hidden tax returns. The court rejected Trump's attempt at blocking New York state prosecutors from getting eight years of his returns. Like other courts before it, this three-judge appeals court ruled that even though a president is immune from state prosecution, that does not mean the president cannot be investigated, as Trump's lawyers have argued. It does not, rule the court, bar the enforcement of that New York state subpoena. Trump's Fox News lawyer Jay Sekulow says the president plans to appeal the decision to the U.S. Supreme Court. He now has one week left to file that appeal. The Supreme Court would rule in June, as little as four months before the 2020 election. New York prosecutors say they want those tax forms to see if any state laws were broken in the hush money payments to Karen McDougal and Stormy Daniels. Last month, a court ruled against Trump's efforts to block a House subpoena for his taxes. That, too, is up for appeal. While under investigation by New York State, Trump is moving his official residence to Florida, the boy from Queens, the man whose tower in Manhattan bears his name, a man very closely associated with New York, is now changing his primary residence to Florida, which has no personal state income tax. Trump is now claiming Mar-a-Lago as his residence in Palm Beach, Florida. In truth, he has spent nearly five times as many nights in Florida than he spent at his residence in Trump Tower. Trump lists all his residences, including the White House and his New Jersey golf club. But goodbye, New York, and hello, Florida. In renouncing the city that helped launch him into the White House, Trump said he'd always cherish New York and its people. But of course, he added, I have been treated very badly by the political leaders of both the city and the state. Few, he added, have been treated worse. Don't let the door hit you on the way out, tweeted New York Mayor Bill de Blasio. Good riddance, tweeted New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, adding, 
It's not like Mr. Trump paid taxes here anyway. He's all yours, Florida. This has been a week of political wins and losses. Salon.com's Bob Seska is here to talk about the losers and about hope. Bob? Thanks, Buzz. You know how I know Donald Trump is far weaker than cable news and political Twitter is saying? Well, first, he's endangered his own presidency by desperately seeking outside help from hapless foreign leaders through henchmen who are too incompetent to be Batman villains. If he were the electoral colossus, some are suggesting, he wouldn't need anyone's help. But he does. He knows it. And he's getting impeached for derping his own scam to get it. Second, in the past three November elections, not to mention countless special elections, Trump's GOP has been receding from power rather than gaining strength. And the latter is the big story to emerge from this week's off-year elections in Virginia and Kentucky, where Democrats continue to humiliate Trump and especially his copycats, such as outgoing Governor Matt Bevan. Further underscoring Trump's weak incumbency is the Republican Party's reaction the day after, since the networks announced that Democrats have secured a trifecta in Virginia, controlling both chambers of its legislature as well as the governor's mansion for the first time in decades. Trump and his dutiful propagandists at the RNC and within the conservative entertainment complex have been reaching for excuses as to what happened, tossing everything against the wall regardless of how stupid it sounds. Trump and RNC chairwoman Ronna McDaniel insisted the president's weekend screechgasm in Lexington pushed Matt Bevan from about 20 points down to within a few points of winner Andy Bashir. Not true. Bashir and Bevan were locked in a dead heat in the polls, and everyone was aware that Bevan's approval numbers were the lowest in the nation among governors, around 32%. Why was Bevin so unpopular? Well, it turns out, and a grateful nation rejoices at this news, that voters aren't big fans of Trump copycats, at least not enough to propel them to victory. Bevin governed and ran as a belligerent red hat, falsely believing he could get away with the same herky-jerky grievance baiting as his mentally incompetent cult leader. He can't. But that's not stopping him from continuing to act like Trump, refusing to accept the results of the election and suing for a recount. Sore loserism is definitely a feature of Trumpism and sadly a character flaw that's gone from being ridiculed and shamed in just about every arena to being championed as strength by tens of millions of misguided Americans. Gratefully, however, those who champion the delusional cause of Trumpism are being overwhelmed by voters who, thank God, see right through its facade of bluster, red-faced rage, and wafer-thin talking points, and certainly when it comes to Republicans who march around canvassing while costumed in their shoddy Halloween store Trump cosplay. One of my major concerns from day one was the potential for copycats, political hacks who think it's acceptable to gratuitously act like Trump, hoping for a repeat of his 2016 success. I thought for sure they'd be fanning out across the country by now, not unlike the clown-masked citizenry of Gotham in Todd Phillips' Joker movie. And while there were definitely a few, including members of Congress like Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows, they don't appear to be faring too well in state and congressional elections. And that's nothing but good news for the world. Trump, by rights, should be the loneliest man in politics today. Republicans, even in deep red states like Kentucky, where Trump won by 30 points in 2016, should be calling Brad Parscale and the White House to wiggle out of hosting a Trump rally in support of their campaigns. After three disastrous elections for the GOP, they should be seeing nothing but the political equivalent of the Ebola virus whenever they see Donald Trump taking the stage. 
Will the Red Hats vote for Republicans without Trump handing down their marching orders? Well, probably, but Trump himself, the grand wizard of the Red Hat Army, ought to be seen as toxic, driving up turnout among Democratic voters, not to mention independents and moderates. Unfortunately, Republicans would rather put party over their own political future, trading up a successful long position beginning in 1964 with an anemic short-term strategy. Just make it through the day without walking into Trump's propeller, irrespective of how much damage it creates on Election Day for everyone not locked into gerrymandered safe districts. The conventional wisdom still exists, suggesting Trump is a juggernaut, an unstoppable electoral kaiju monster who will stomp every Democrat in his path. While it's true he could still be reelected thanks to the Electoral College, he can only really do it by pulling a James T. Kirk, rigging the unwinnable Kobayashi Maru test. He's still president, and Mitch McConnell still controls the Senate. The Trump crisis is still on. And we can't get happy until a new president is fully sworn in. But the conventional wisdom is wrong. Three shitty elections for Trump have proved that despite his childishly ridiculous excuses and spin, he'll need all the illegal outside help he can get away with in order to make up for the fact that everyone beyond the 40 percenters aren't playing anymore. With overwhelming turnout and with a Democratic nominee who will hopefully keep his or her mistakes to a minimum... The terrible specter of Trumpism could be fading away from capturing anything but districts with baked-in Republican control. Again, don't get happy. He can still win. But the dark ride of the Trump crisis looks like it might be receding into nothing but memory and the history books. And I, for one, intend to make sure we never forget what's happened here and why. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I join Bob on his Tuesday shows. Another in a string of legal losses for Trump. A federal judge yesterday killed his administration rule, allowing health care providers to deny care on religious grounds. This so-called conscience rule would have allowed providers to refuse to take part in abortions or in other procedures that offend them. The rule was to have gone into effect toward the end of this month, but Trump's plan is now off-limits, the judge calling health care a basic right. The annual Affordable Care Act enrollment season is now open with some lower rates and new options as more insurance companies venture back into the ACA marketplace. But the Trump agenda marches forward, including against the rights of LGBTQ citizens. A new proposed rule from Trump's Health and Human Services Secretary would make it legal to discriminate against taxpayers who are LGBTQ when it comes to government grants. The grants in question here include foster care and adoption programs, and faith-based agencies in multiple states have argued they shouldn't have to provide those services to those who are gay, lesbian, or transgender. The grants the Trump administration wants to deny for LGBTQ citizens would also include money for the prevention of HIV and STDs, health education, and pre-kindergarten for their children. It's another undoing of an Obama administration rule that banned such discrimination. The new Trump rule went into effect last Friday. Expect court challenges and another likely Trump defeat current tension in the world between Russia and the West is putting the world in colossal danger. 
the person who spoke those words also called on all nations to declare that nuclear weapons should be destroyed. This person who said these things this week is former Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev. 27-year-old Richard Holzer is looking at up to 20 years in prison. He was arrested this week by the FBI for plotting to blow up a synagogue in Pueblo, Colorado, two hours south of Denver. Holzer had told another Facebook user, I wish the Holocaust really did happen. They need to die. Holzer had several Facebook accounts for promoting violence, saying in one post he was, quote, getting ready to cap people. FBI agents, posing as like-minded to Holzer, made contact with him through Facebook Messenger, where he informed them he was a member of the KKK, but now he's a full-on skinhead. The FBI undercover agents told him they had pipe bombs, and when they met Holzer to deliver those fake bombs, they arrested him. The temple he targeted is one of the oldest in Colorado and is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Holzer told an undercover FBI agent he wanted to, quote, vandalize the place beyond repair. Holzer was arrested one year after the shooting at a temple in Pittsburgh that left 11 people dead. Oklahoma released 462 nonviolent prisoners from its prisons this week. It appears to be the biggest number of simultaneously commuted sentences in U.S. history. 65 more will be released later, but their sentences have been commuted as well. Oklahoma's governor is a former mortgage company CEO who's advocated for criminal justice reform as he leads the state with the highest incarceration rate in the country. The wind in his sails came from a voter referendum three years ago that changed simple drug possession and low-level property crimes from felonies to misdemeanors. This week, the system caught up. The governor says it's time to give hundreds of nonviolent Oklahomans a second chance. The tall steel slats that make up parts of Trump's border wall are nearly impossible to climb. But you can saw through them. Mexican smugglers using power tools anyone can buy have cut gaps in Trump's wall, gaps big enough for passing through drugs and people. That was the news this week from the Washington Post who got the word from U.S. border agents and related officials. The Post learned that a $100 cordless reciprocating saw with the right blades can cut clean through one of those slats. Because the slats are only bonded to each other at the top of the fence, cutting one near the soil makes it possible to bend the slat out of the way, and one cut is all that's needed for a gap large enough for an adult to walk through with contraband. In the San Diego area, smugglers have fashioned special ladders for climbing over the wall. The cost of Trump's wall so far, $10 billion. This week, a group of 11,000 scientists from around the world declared a climate emergency and predicted, quote, untold suffering. 11,258 scientists from 153 countries, to be exact. But this study is unlike any other before it, not just because it's the first to use the word emergency, but because it serves up a helping of hope along with its main course of gloom, Unlike previous reports, they gave us a list of six things the world's leaders need to do to address this emergency. One is to address population with family planning services available to all people. 
a more obvious recommendation, energy conservation and brisk transition from fossil fuels to renewable forms of energy. Our goal, they say, is to never burn another bit of fossil fuel and for carbon to go back into the ground. The scientists call for a brisk transition away from meat and toward plant-based foods. But the key word is emergency. The scientists say life on Earth, including human life, is in danger. Quoting the report, the crisis has arrived and is accelerating faster than expected and more severely than anticipated. And in the same week, these 11,000 scientists issued their desperate warning, Trump ordered the U.S. withdrawn from the Paris Climate Accord and his administration scrapped rules that would have restricted the water waste from coal-fired power plants. Monday was the first day that Trump could legally, officially announce the U.S. was pulling out of the Paris Accord, so he did. The pullout itself doesn't become official until the day after Inauguration Day 2021, which means the next president could put us back in just in the nick of time. But for now, the U.S. is the only nation in the agreement that's backing out. Under Donald Trump, the U.S. is abandoning its role as a leader in the fight against man-made climate change and is now simply the world's second largest producer of greenhouse gases. And that decision has been called irresponsible and dangerous. Trump's EPA this week rolled back Obama-era rules that govern how power plants store the wastewater from their coal-burning power plants. The pits that are dug to store the toxic wastewater no longer have to be lined these plants are now free to release their toxic metal water into nearby rivers and streams and groundwater. What could possibly go wrong? And Trump kicked off the week by blaming California for its latest rash of wildfires. It was the first time Trump had even acknowledged the state's horrific fires this fall, and it included a threat to cut off federal aid to California, even though half the land that has burned is federal parkland. Up his nose, cookies in space, and we have the best cheese in the final second after this. I am proud of what I do here, proud of this effort at independent journalism, and I feel I'm doing the best and most important work of my career. And I do this with tremendous pleasure, but as I've said before, while this newscast is free to you, it's not free to make. If you'd like to help this effort, please click on the PayPal Donate button in the upper right at buzzburbank.com or on your phone just below the title Buzz Burbank News and Comment. And there's still that little Amazon button on my page. If you're shopping Amazon anyway, going through my page and bookmarking that still helps. Thank you so much to those of you who actively support this independent news. At least one person has died and a dozen others made sick by a salmonella outbreak that was traced to tainted ground beef. At last report, no single supplier had been linked to the outbreak, and the people getting sick often ate several different brands purchased at different stores from different chains. Of eight patients interviewed, six of them said they had cooked the ground beef themselves at home. Experts say that if you're not freezing raw meat, just refrigerating it, it should be eaten within two days. They say you should keep raw meat away from other foods and wash your hands for 20 seconds with soap and warm water before and after handling raw meat. They also recommend that ground beef be cooked to up to 160 degrees. 
more than a month into this year's flu season. The only outbreak so far are in Louisiana and Puerto Rico, but there have still been well over 400 cases reported so far. That's about par for the start of November, and doctors are recommending people get their shots before the flu does what it always does, spreads. Both the regular and over-65 vaccines are widely available, despite sketchy earlier reports of a shortage. The importance of vaccinations was underscored this week by a new study that shows measles can wipe out your immune system's memory of previous illnesses. In other words, measles gives your immune system a kind of amnesia in which it doesn't remember how to fight certain illnesses. Some anti-vaxxers pay thousands of dollars to get the measles so they will be immune from that disease. But this new study shows the measles virus makes the body forget what it has learned about all the others. The most dramatic health news of the week concerns cystic fibrosis, a devastating lung disease that spreads to other organs. Patients spend hours a day coughing to keep their lungs clear. They wear vibrating vests to shake loose the mucus. Their life expectancy is 44 years. But a new therapy for CF has made a dramatic difference in patients, attacking the source of the disease for the very first time instead of just addressing the symptoms. It is a medical breakthrough that's been pursued for so long that the successful end of that search brought both patients and doctors to tears. Up his nose. A team of doctors in Australia labored to remove from a man's nose something that had been up there for 18 years. It was a balloon filled with marijuana smuggled to him by his girlfriend when he was in prison 18 years ago. He didn't know it was still there. He figured he'd swallowed it. But this would explain the 18 years of sinus infections and headaches. Over time, the balloon became encased in a stone-like material made of calcium salts. Doctors were able to remove that material and the balloon full of deteriorated weed. An election official in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, was scratching his head at the absentee ballot in front of him. It listed the voting location as International Space Station, Low Earth Orbit. The vote had been cast by Andrew Morgan, who lives in that township and is registered to vote. And it is the same Drew Morgan who is currently on the International Space Station, quoting the election official, very, very cool. Nothing says loving like cookies from the oven. The question examined here is, can you bake cookies in space? Will the cookie dough even hold together? Will the cookies be globe-shaped or tube-shaped? Will they even bake in zero-G? A company called Zero-G Kitchens is counting on it. We're about to get the answers with a small oven that is now also aboard the International Space Station. Despite getting some of the worst scores from the judges, Dancing with the Stars contestant Sean Spicer continues the viewers refusing to boot him off the show. Some viewers support Trump's former press secretary to troll Democrats. Some just like fighting for an underdog, and some vote for Spicer as a goof. The judges are confounded, and Trump is delighted, cheering on Spicer on Twitter. Last week, he tweeted about an hour before the show went on the air. Guys, get this going for Spicy, Trump tweeted, continuing, the meltdown the Hollywood types keep having when he wins is so worth the time. And Rudy. From the first season of Survivor, Rudy Bosch has died at the age of 91. Rudy enlisted in the Navy in World War II at age 17. 
He retired from the military in 1990 after decades as an active duty SEAL and special ops. He played in the first season of Survivor at age 72 and remains an all-time favorite contestant. Terminator Dark Fate is this week's top movie, opening with a weak $29 million. The producers spent $285 million to make it and were hoping to open with at least $40 million. Joker was a distant second, but in other news is still in second place. The holiday movie season opens in just a couple of weeks. Find out what's coming, nail tickets, and more through the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. A Wisconsin man has broken the world record for continuous pinball playing. Except for five-minute breaks each hour to eat, drink, and use the restroom, Ryan Clancy played pinball for 32 hours and two minutes. The previous record was 30 hours and 10 minutes. That was set by Wayne Johns, who told Ryan Clancy it would be fine if he decided to stop just short of that. There are some things the U.S. still does best, and this time it's cheese. For the first time ever in worldwide competition, the U.S. has won best cheese. Rogue River Blue is made in the fall from organic milk from Brown Swiss and Holstein cows in southern Oregon. The cheese wheels spend around 10 months in the company's cheese caves and are then hand-wrapped in organic grape leaves that had been pre-soaked in pear liqueur. Rogue River Blue was voted best by 260 judges from 35 countries. An Italian cheese came in second, USA. It was morning mango madness in Maryland this week as a truck overturned on the 495 Beltway. It's our highway spill of the week, mangoes in Maryland. Morning drive traffic was backed up for miles while the mangoes were wrangled. A one-ton boulder that was taken last month from one of Arizona's national forests. Let me say that again. A one-ton boulder that was taken last month from one of Arizona's national forests has now been returned to its original location. A ranger reported it missing last Friday. Now it's back. It has reappeared as mysteriously as it disappeared. Officials are not sure how this one-ton rock was removed and returned without a trace. It is known as Wizard Rock, after all. And please don't feed the bird. The Harvard Law School is asking students to please don't feed the bird that's somehow taken up residence in the school's library. It's flitted about for days while campus officials try to figure out how to catch the bird and release it back into the wild. In the meantime, they're urging students to please stop leaving food and water for the bird. Animals seem to have taken a keen interest in books suddenly, and Arkansas State University raccoons invaded the library there to escape the rain. And there, the maintenance staff were able to catch the raccoons and turn them loose. Nick Dondero of Glastonbury, Connecticut, just got a summons for jury duty, and really, he shouldn't have to serve. Nick is, after all, just 10 years old. His parents sent back the summons, noting Nick's age, and he has now been excused. Sheriff's officers in Louisiana have arrested 52-year-old Belinda Gale Fondren, who worked as a clerk in a medical clinic for allegedly writing fake medical excuses for high school students at 20 bucks a pop. Tuesday night, the x-ray machine told TSA agents at Newark there was a gun in a bag, but a hands-on examination showed it was actually just shaped like a gun. When you pull the trigger, it unspools toilet paper. It is a novelty toilet paper dispenser. 
TSA told the owner he could either move it to a checked bag or surrender it. The TSA is now the proud owner of a gun-shaped toilet paper dispenser. While you finish off the Halloween candy, I'll make short work of these Halloween leftovers. On the day after Halloween, people were invited to the Gatlinburg Sky Bridge in Tennessee to toss their pumpkins over the side at five bucks apiece. There was plenty of room. That is the longest pedestrian suspension bridge in North America. The sponsors of the pumpkin toss provided pumpkins to pumpkinless people. And at about 6.30 p.m., more than 100 people tossed their pumpkins all at the same time. Look out below. First responders in Ohio braced themselves for the worst when they saw a young woman in a bloody prom dress at the scene of a car wreck. It turns out the 20-year-old had just returned from a haunted house dressed as Carrie to promote Marshall University's production of Carrie the Musical, based on the novel by Stephen King. The young woman calls it an ironic situation, but that she'd actually just hit a deer. And once they realized what was happening, she says the first responders thought it was hilarious. And finally, in Kankakee, Illinois, 25-year-old Brandon Conti, wanted for failure to appear on a drunk driving charge, was offended when he saw his mugshot go online on Halloween. Where's my costume? He responded to the sheriff's Facebook post, promising to turn himself in before noon if police would have the paperwork ready and give him a costume in his mugshot. These days, he's wearing a prison jumpsuit. Brandon kept his promise once the sheriff's office kept theirs. Brandon turned himself in once he got a Halloween costume. A quick Photoshop later, Brandon's mugshot had reappeared online with him wearing a sailor suit and a hat that read, Ahoy! <laughs> I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and your support to the donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network. Reese's has a thing. Yeah. I'd never seen this before, so it's caramel, peanut butter, and Reese's Pieces. Whoa. Covered in chocolate. Whoa. Yeah. It was <laughs> so good. Wow. And there was only one of them in there, and I'm like, man, why aren't there more of these in there? And I Reed didn't get that one, I guess, huh? No, he didn't want that. <laughs> You know. <laughs> yeah, he didn't want it. He didn't want it. He didn't <laughs> yeah, know he I'm had it. Through. You were like, oh, this is a yucky one. This one tastes like medicine. <laughs> yeah, these are yucky. You're not going to like these. <laughs> yeah, that has broccoli pieces inside. Oh, he got mad at me at one thing. I think it was Snickers or something, and he goes... Dad, you remember you told me I didn't like these? <laughs> well, I like them. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Sorry about that, kid. Must remember have been wrong. You told you told me <laughs> I didn't <laughs> like these. <laughs> Resistance is futile. It's the Mark and Lowell show.